Amen. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Acts of the Apostles, the second chapter, where we will once again be looking together at verses 14 through 39. I'll remind you, this is our second look together at this same passage. Last week, we looked primarily at verses 14 through 24, so our primary focus this morning is going to be verses 22 through 39, though we will read uh, the whole passage once again for context. Acts chapter 2, 14 through 39. You can find that passage on page 1070 in your pew Bibles or pages 10, 12, and 14 in your Acts journals. Last week we began looking together at Peter's first sermon, preached here on these crowded streets of Jerusalem during the day of Pentecost celebration to what we would refer to as a mixed crowd. There are Jews present for this sermon from really all over the known world. And we spoke prior to last week about the actual pouring out of the Holy Spirit and its effect upon these speakers and hearers alike. They were all speaking and hearing the wonders of the gospel spoken in their own native tongues by people who simply should not have been able to do so. So we're reminded this was a supernatural event. And that is significant. This is much more than just a new opportunistic religious sect drawing attention to themselves in a very busy place through odd sort of standout behavior. Something very important is taking place here in this specific moment in time, as we've witnessed over the last few weeks. The Apostle Peter stands up, he rises in this crowd that is beginning to settle on the side of being of this whole thing being a simple case of intoxication that they are witnessing. Peter speaks out in order to bring clarity to what this event truly is. He brings three things to mind at the beginning of his discourse that we looked at last week. First, though, before he does that, immediately, I would say even urgently, Peter makes it very clear that the drunkenness charge for what was transpiring before many witnesses in Jerusalem here, is entirely without merit and really entirely without any thought or any sense at all. In other words, it was a ridiculous notion. And Peter will not just sit idly by and let this large group of people fail to see this event for what it truly was. And so he tells them, First and foremost, this event marks the very critical fulfillment of God's promise to send the Holy Spirit upon his people. What was transpiring this day on these streets of Jerusalem was a marker for them. A day that would begin the anticipation of the return of the king. A day that would initiate the last days. The Holy Spirit had come and he would write his law, the law of God and the hope of the gospel upon the people's hearts and not merely upon stone. 
a new day had dawned. And if the people were to understand the significance of it, they would need a spirit-empowered witness to look at the Word of God and explain it to them. Which is exactly what they had this day in the Apostle Peter. A spirit-empowered witness of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mentioned to you several times over the last couple of weeks the significant changes that we witness in the Apostle Peter here. I'm not going to rehash them all again this morning, but I trust that you too have seen it. He is certainly a changed man. And so Peter goes to the Word of God, he goes specifically to the prophet Joel, and he explains it to them, to this crowd. He tells them, this that you are seeing is exactly what Joel prophesied. And it serves as a sign. A sign of the fact that indeed the Messiah had already come. And Jesus of Nazareth, whom they were all familiar with, was indeed that Messiah. He has already come. He has begun the work of restoration upon all that had become broken, marred, and crippled by the sin curse. The day has come. He came. He died for our sin, making propitiation for our sins as the only perfectly fitted sacrifice. And of course, death could not hold him. He arose as he said he would. And Peter and these followers saw him. They broke bread with him. They sat at his feet and they learned for him. A fact that is clearly manifested, as I said, in Peter himself here. He is not the same guy. And now, as the Holy Spirit empowers the church, they, and we for that matter, will carry out the mission of the great King, King Jesus, and take the message of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the very ends of the earth, all the while looking toward heaven in eager expectation of our Lord's return to make all things new for eternity. And as I've told you many times now, beloved, this is the age that you and I still live in. So we have Peter making clear this pouring out of the Spirit is much more than just another spectacle in Jerusalem. It marks the beginning of this age. And the anticipation of this day we saw last week did not start with Peter. In fact, it did not even start with Joel. No, we traced it back as far as Moses, Numbers 11, who upon seeing the gracious hand of Almighty God pouring out just a measure of His Spirit upon the 70 elders of Israel in order to equip them to serve in the work of God, to be an aid to Moses with the people. Moses said that his desire, the longing of his heart, would be that that God would pour out His Spirit upon all of those whom He declares to be His people. And that is happening here in the second chapter of Acts. A new day has dawned. 
We must see the significance of it and what it means for those of us still living in this very age today. And finally, we must see that that what this pouring out of the Spirit means for us. Beloved, you and I are now equipped to speak of the hope of the gospel to any and all who will give us time. The Spirit opens our hearts and minds to receive the rich truth of the gospel. He gives us understanding into these things. And we take that hope to the ends of the earth, knowing that the Spirit of God is shining like a spotlight upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling his sheep home to and through him until he comes again in power to make final judgment and the complete restoration of all things, ushering in the new heavens and earth. And we now, through the power of the Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, we now must learn to trust him. We must rest in him. And we must trust him with our salvation. Indeed, we must trust him with our very lives. And now Peter, in the text that is before us this morning, makes the case even more clear as he describes exactly who this Messiah is from the Word of God. So if you've not yet done so, please turn with me once again to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and follow along as I read verses 14 through 39. And again, I remind you, our focus will be primarily verses 22 through 39. Hear now the holy, infallible, and inerrant word of our Lord. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. 
You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the wonderful truth of your word, and we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would open that word to us this morning. Give us insight into these things. May we know these things not to puff us up, but to humble us, to transform us more and more into the image of your Son. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Peter now, midway through his sermon, is continuing to build his picture for these listeners to gain understanding into the significance of what it is they are witnessing in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It indeed signals the dawning of a new era in redemptive history, but of course it does more than that. It is also an occasion for us to see the ordinary means of salvation being accomplished and applied in this era, the era that we live in. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but through the Spirit-empowered preaching and hearing of the gospel, the King, the King of Kings, is building His kingdom. Hearts are being changed. Lives are being transformed. But there's still more here than even just that. I want to just quickly point out to you, this event marks something else here for the Apostle Peter. And his desire is very clear that all people would come to see it and know it. Do you know what it is I'm talking about? Consider this. These people have been witnesses to the birth, the life and the ministry of, the death, even the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Eyewitnesses. You understand, they have seen it. They have spent precious time 
with Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to the miraculous activity that was such a large part of his earthly ministry. They witnessed the blind receiving their sight, the deaf being made to hear, even the dead rising up in new resurrected life. They were also witnesses of his ascension, or at least an aspect of it. They had watched with their own eyes the Christ of God being taken up into the heavens before them. But Peter is making the case here that they also can now know for certain both where he was going and that he had in fact arrived. Where he was going and that he had in fact arrived. And that's important for them to rest in the assurance that indeed they were all that they needed to be in Christ Jesus by faith. Because of where he was going, And where it was that he had arrived to, they could rest entirely in him. This pouring out of the Holy Spirit is proof that Jesus Christ is now fully seated upon his throne. He's not only ascended into the heavens, but he has ascended to his majestic throne in glory as the King of kings. And he is now reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father. So Peter is necessarily here tying what is being witnessed on this day of Pentecost to the ascension of the risen King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pouring out of the Holy Spirit is yet another proof of the faithfulness of Almighty God in doing exactly what He has promised to do. And we have to know that. You have to be, you have to be somebody who has read the Scripture and looked at the Scripture to know it. But Peter is undoubtedly remembering Jesus' words here regarding the significance of this very moment in time. And we could go many different places in the Word of God to see that. One place that I found myself going back to again and again is the Gospel according to John. Chapter 14, verses 16 through 29. Jesus, speaking to his disciples of what was coming, said this to them. And I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments keeps them. It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him 
and we will make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. And now, I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Now, let me just say, Obviously, this passage in John 14 is a treasure trove, to be sure. And unfortunately, it is one whose depths we will not be plummeting together in the interest of time this morning. But I hope you see enough here to continue your investigation into it in your own study time, because it's full of rich truth. I'm bringing it up here to say that certainly Peter, the Apostle Peter now, standing amid this crowd, some of which is hostile, witnessing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Peter remembers these words. That's the point that Jesus was making. That's why he told them, so that they would recognize it in the face of it. And Peter knows He knows that this which is now before them is that which had been promised by Jesus before. Do you see that? And so he rightly sees the fruition of the promise of God here, pointing them to the fact that the risen king is now firmly seated upon his throne. He is reigning. He is not leaving them alone. His spirit is now with them, allowing them to both see and understand all of these things. Peter is saying, this is that. The risen king is upon his throne. That is the great overarching point here in the text before us. And Peter points all along to the wonderful sovereignty of Almighty God and his wise providence in all of it. He opens this section of his sermon reminding them that this Jesus, who's now clearly upon his throne, is someone you know. He says God has attested to him through miracles, signs, and wonders in your presence. He did not do these things hidden away in a corner. He did them here and all around here. You saw them. In this sense, Peter is saying to them, you too, he's saying to this crowd, you too are witnesses of these things. Jesus has been revealed. It's a sobering reminder to us, beloved, because we too are witnesses of these things. Through the testimony of the word of God. And there really are only two responses to it. Either yes, this is the Messiah. Or no, this is foolishness. 
Peter goes further than that in his challenge to these witnesses. He says of Jesus, Him delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death. This is one of those places in Scripture where we can begin to see the sovereignty of God existing right alongside of the responsibility for sin at the hands of men. Peter says, this was part of God's plan. God had purposed. He had determined that these things would lead us here to this very moment in history. He has been over all of it. However, it was through your lawless hands that these things were carried out. It was man's sin. Your sin. Our sin, Peter is saying here. You, the unbelieving Jew. You, the Roman leader. You, the rebellious at heart. You have crucified him. You have taken his life through your sin. But God will and did in fact raise him up. Peter says, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. How did Peter know that? How does he come to such a definitive statement here about the death of the Messiah not being permanent? Well, he knows the word of God. He remembers these things. And Peter sees history now empowered by the very Spirit of Almighty God through the lens of King Jesus. So we see him here once again go right back to the Word of God and make application for their exact situation from it. He points them to Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. We read it already this morning, both from the psalm itself and then again from Peter's sermon here in the second chapter of Acts. Peter quotes it, and then he explains it to them. He says to them that King David, the man who who penned these very words, you all know. You know he's dead. You know he's buried here where his bones are still with us to this day. Right over there in his tomb. So he cannot be referring to himself as one whose soul will not be left in Hades or whose flesh will not know corruption. His grave is here and he, his body that is, is in it. No, Peter says, no, David was a prophet. And he was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the Messiah, the King of Kings. It is he that will not be left in Hades. It is his flesh that will not see corruption. And that's why the tomb of David is filled with a man's bones and the tomb of Jesus is indeed empty. Because this is him. This is what Peter is saying to this crowd. It's what he's saying to us, beloved. This is the Christ. God has raised him from the dead. He's no longer here. He's now upon his throne, ruling and reigning until that time when he will certainly come again to make all things new. Peter says to them, look, your intentions were evil. 
But God, in his mercy, used it for good. The king is upon his throne. He is both the Messiah, the Christ of God, and he is the Lord. He is the kurios, it says in the Greek. And we must bow before him. We must live gratefully before the face of Almighty God because of him. And King David saw it. David longed for this very day. Do you see it, beloved? You understand, this is the hope of the Christian life. Do you understand this morning why this is such a great encouragement for you in your own life? Let me ask you something. Are you discouraged this morning? Are you frustrated with your lot in life? Are you afraid? Are you anxious? You know, there is a sense, of course, where we would all probably say to some degree, you know what, Steve, I am. I am all of those things. So much is uncertain. So much is unknown. So much of my life appears to be outside of my control. And frankly, it scares me. Yes, we know it, don't we? All too often we see it. Yeah, we're afraid. Yes, this flesh still dogs us, even in this new era of redemptive history. Yes, we get discouraged. Yes, this is convicting, right? Peter says, yes, it is. But look, the king is upon his throne. Don't you see? He is reigning. He's directing all things according to his perfect holy will. He's working all things together for the good of those whom he and his mercy has called. Do you see it, beloved? Are you encouraged by the truth of the gospel? This Jesus has done it all. God told you he would in his word, and he has proven it throughout the course of history. He is faithful. You understand, this is where you go. Peter says, look at the wonderful word of God and see so many of the signs of the risen king being seated upon his heavenly throne. Pouring out of his Holy Spirit proves it. David in his prophecy proves it. The words of Jesus to his own disciples proves it. The grave could not hold him. God had loosed the cords or the bands of death. They will not and they cannot hold the king because he is the king. He is God in flesh. And he's now on his throne. Peter points them to another psalm, Psalm 110, a very well-known verse of a very well-known psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David was, of course, not talking about himself. 
He was talking about this Christ, this Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Peter ties it all together in verse 36. He ties it together with verse 32 of chapter 2 of Joel's prophecy. And you see the similarity, right? Peter says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The Apostle Paul will make the same point in Romans 10. Verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. And beloved, I trust you see the grace of God, the mercy of God in that word, whoever. Even those who crucified the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Do you understand? Embrace this Jesus, his person, his work as all you need, all you will ever need to be reconciled to the Father and declared to be the justified child of the Most High God. This is the King of Kings. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is He who was resurrected and who has ascended to the right hand of the Father where He now lives, the Word of God tells us, to make intercession for us. Do you see the glory in it? Peter is letting you know very clearly, this is that. This is everything we've been waiting for. This is everything we've hoped for. This is the thing. Jesus is Him. This is your Redeemer come with salvation in His wings and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us some of them, some of this crowd, cried out to Peter and the other apostles, clearly cut to the heart. They said, what do we do now? They were cut by what they heard and they had only just begun to understand. The Holy Spirit was beginning to pry open blind eyes and to soften stony hearts. What were they to do? There was no doubt they were guilty. They had been complicit in his murder. Some of these may have been those who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. They had rejected the message and all of those confirming miracles of the King of Kings. And so they reply with desperation. What do we do now? And Peter sets the tone for the church of this age when he takes them from the law to the gospel. Do you see that? He does not continue to point out their failure or their guilt. Look at what he says. What are we to do? We're desperate. We're guilty. We know we did these things. Is there any hope for us? And Peter says, repent and be baptized into this very name. The name of Jesus. Who is both Lord and Christ. 
repent and run to Jesus and receive the sign of his precious covenant. Be baptized into his life and his death and his resurrection. Find full pardon for the sins of your life, past, present, and future. Know that he has ascended and is now your mediator before the Father, sanctifying all that you do and say and think. Run to the King and get life. And all who run to him will be saved. These many Many of these unbelievers prior to this sermon were those who were safe that day. Many of these eyewitnesses to the miraculous activity of Christ, many of these who had missed all the signs, ran to Jesus and were saved. God began to build his kingdom through the spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And villains and scoundrels were saved. The number you remember is 3,000 souls that day. Not 120. These are new followers who are being translated from death to life and made into faithful servants of the king, not just those who appear faithful already. Beloved, this is the power of the gospel. And Peter sees it. And those who were called saw it. And all who were empowered by the Holy Spirit of God saw it. And they ran to Jesus who is both Lord of all and the Christ of God. This is that. And it still is, beloved. It still is. One of the real difficulties in this era of redemptive history is that This flesh has not yet been done away with. Satan is still barking fervently, though ultimately he has no teeth. He is a defeated foe. Though we still wrestle with sin, and we know what it is to doubt amid our troubles. I know I do. Do you? You say, well, what do you mean? Well, your career appears to be on the verge of destruction. Your family has gone off the rails. Your identity has taken a real hit because of the indwelling sin that so easily ensnares us in this life. And we are rightly disappointed with ourselves. We are disgusted by our sin. How could we, who have been declared to be the children of God, fail so spectacularly? How could we, the children of the king, run so quickly back into fear and bondage? What should we do? 
What should we do? Well, beloved, the answer has not changed. We should run to Jesus. And we should do it again and again and again and again. We should remind ourselves of the truth that has been so beautifully revealed to us in God's word. We should avail ourselves to the ordinary means of grace that God in his mercy has made so available to us. We should know that indeed he has not left us as orphans. He went to the Father and he sent us the Spirit that we might right now have a taste of the glory of eternal life. Do you taste it? He promised and he delivered. He is faithful again and again. And when we are not, we are reminded here that he is for us. Do you believe that? He loves us. He's moving heaven and earth in this difficult life so that we are saved from death to life. Peter points you towards that truth. He says, in effect, trust Christ the Lord and rest in Him. Give up on all of your replacement messiahs. Your money, your material possessions will never save you. They're not your messiah. Your spouse will never save you. Your marriage reminds you that only Christ can. Your career will not define you. It is but one tiny means of providing for you in a creation that he sovereignly controls. Your anger and your disappointment never point to your piety. It points to your need for this Jesus who is both Lord and Christ. Will you run to Him again and again this morning? Beloved, I pray that we will. And I pray that as we do it together, our worship will fuel our joy as fellow sojourners who will encourage one another by pointing continually to Jesus Christ the Lord. Let that knowledge be reflected as we close in our worship this morning. In fact, let it be reflected in the way that we all live as grateful servants to the risen King of Kings upon His throne in glory. Amen.